I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode of the podcast, our final one of 2022, I'm joined by an absolute legend, the multi-award-winning music photographer Jill Fermanovsky. We kick off with the start of her career in 1972, becoming in-house photographer at the Rainbow Theatre, where she specialised in live rock concerts. And over the past 50 years, she has photographed some of the greatest musicians on the planet, including Led Zeppelin, The Rolling Stones, Madness, Debbie Harry, Oasis, Joy Division, Queen, The Clash, and of course, The Jam, capturing amazing live shots from their live gigs, along with... Paul Weller for The Face magazine and at Glastonbury Festival is just a couple of examples. So we'll find out all about that as well as her incredible website, rockarchive.com. A massive collection of not just Jill's work, but photographers and visual artists right across the planet. And do stick around at the end of this podcast for something pretty cool on that front as well. So another corking guest to the podcast. Let's get into it. Jill Fermanovsky. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. This is lovely to have you on because not only are we going to talk about some of the pictures that us fans will have seen, but you've obviously got the archive there of, of stuff that we haven't. Yes. Yes, I do. I'm not hiding it from you. I just haven't got around to it. <laughs> I should have popped round. This has been lovely in person. This is going to be really exciting. I want to dig into your memories as a photographer over the past, what are we talking now? 40, 50, nearly 50 years. This year's my 50th anniversary. Right. I began as a proper photographer, I suppose. I mean, I did photograph with an Instamatic, you know, when I was a teenager. But yes, I mean, my first gig where I had a professional camera, that wasn't professional by any means, was in 1972, January 72. So this is actually my 50th anniversary this year. Oh, well, congratulations on that. And look, we're going to dig into some of these stories. And so those first shots, that pre 
1972 was, I mean, I understand you were like a massive Beatles fans. Is it called an apple scruff? Is that what they call it? Yes, I, I, I believe so. But unfortunately, I was a bit too young to be an apple scruff because I was about 13 and you had to be more like 16. You know, that time, that age, the difference between 12, 13 and 16 is quite big. So the apple scruff's got to do little errands for the Beatles and, you know, go to the shop and buy them cigarettes and <laughs> milk and stuff. The smaller ones just stood there in our school uniform, you know, or whatever it was that we were just hanging around outside abbey road yeah and um also i was a member of the fan club so i had a card and then you'd get you know you you'd get your news from the beatles you'd get the beatle monthly which was an incredible publication and see all the pictures in there you see so you know that, i think that started me off thinking that's what i've got to do so this love of music this love of image and photography starts at a really young age and it, you came over to london in the mid 60s was that right yes that's correct yeah i was born in a little town in what was then rhodesia and is now zimbabwe so i come from a family who were themselves refugees from one place or another you know at the turn of the century so my father's a Lithuanian root and my mother from Germany. And um, lots of people sort of shunted their way through Africa around the uh, time of the war or, or way before the war, actually, in the case of the Lithuanians. They came in the sort of turn of the century. And um, so I was born in this little town called Bulawayo in uh, 1965. No, no, I came in 65. I was born in 53. So I was 11. And was music then a, a big part of your world back home? Were the Beatles and that before you came to London in the, what, 63 that had been around, right? Would that have been a thing? Was music in, a big thing in the household? It was. It was a big thing, but it wasn't the kind of music I liked. It was my, my father actually played guitar in a in a dance band. That wasn't his job. I mean, he was an architect, but his hobby, he had two hobbies. Um, photography was one, and the other was playing guitar. And his, his favourite music was jazz. So he had a very big collection for the little town of Bulawayo of vinyl. You know, Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, and so on and so on and so on. Blossom Deary, I remember as well. And he would play these records on his, you know, much beloved uh, stereo on the weekends, you know. And of course, it was an outdoor life. So you'd you'd, you'd hear it outside. And, and I think I remember telling him to turn it off because, you know, he didn't <laughs> like it. And But it wasn't the beat. My, my, um, one of my aunties was an Elvis fan. He really liked Elvis. I didn't know much who Elvis was. But the one record I remember sort of penetrated not just the white population, but also the black population was the song My Boy Lollipop, which was the first release on Island Records, I think, big hit by Millie. We all loved that, the kids. And then, and then the Beatles, of course, were starting through and we were like, Beatles? You know, in Africa, we've got a lot of Beatles around, you know, dung Beatles and all kinds <laughs> of Beatles. And um, we just thought it was maybe they were... I don't know, you know, um, biologists or something. I had no idea what the Beatles were. So it wasn't really till we came to London that I understood what they were really. Right. And as a teenager growing up or, uh, you know, in London in the, the swinging 60s, I mean, that's a huge, exciting time for music, but also the visualisation of music at that time. So when we talk about photography, suddenly these bands are very photogenic. We're seeing images all over the place of these bands as well. So the two worlds colliding um, as a youngster must be a really exciting period, I thought. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, I was just a schoolgirl, but we lived in uh, uh, in London suburb of Kenton and that was one Kingsbury actually was and that was one stop from Wembley Park and that's where Ready Steady Go was made so you could also go there and get your autograph book and collect autographs but so that that Ready Steady Go is 
you know, programs in those days that you watched were watched by everybody because there was only about two channels anyway. And Ready, Steady, Go was the one, um, I think it preceded Top of the Pops. And so, yeah, I mean, that's where you saw how to do your hair, what to wear, what to say, you know, and all those kind of things. And it was very visual. And it was also like a bit dangerous as well, you know, it was a new thing. And you start doing a textile and graphic design course in London. And is it right after only a couple of weeks, you get that gig as the official photographer at the Rainbow? Less than, it was four and a half days, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, somebody's making a documentary about my work and that's how it begins kind of things with, you know, my arriving from Africa and being a Beatles fan and then standing outside Abbey Road. And then that extraordinary block course that I did, I was doing a textile design course at the Central School of Art and Design. And you did like a two-week course to photograph your work. You see, that's what it was for. But they had a really good department there. But it wasn't an art or anything. Photogra- if you wanted to study photography, you went to technical college. Art schools didn't have photography courses, except at postgraduate level. If you were really serious, you'd do it once you'd done a degree in a dip AD, a diploma in art and design. So you didn't do photography at art school. Is that because they, the, the technicals, they were thinking it was all about learning, I don't know, the aperture and all that, that the technical yeah. side of, of a camera? Yeah. And then developing film and all that, you know, yeah. technicians, people in lab coats and, you know, that sort of thing. So we had this wonderful facility at the central in the basement with dark rooms and things and very good teachers, but it wasn't something you could shift and say, I'd like to do that instead. I did this, it was the beginning of the second term of my first year, I was I was 18. And we did the course. And from the very first day, I was completely hooked. I mean, literally from the first day, my father had been a really good amateur and he'd had a dark room at home. So it's kind of was in the blood already. And I was longing to get my hands on a proper camera, Pentax it was. And, you know, from the first roll of film, I was like, completely hooked. So those four days were very long for me because on the fourth day or the fifth day when I had a ticket to see the group Yes at the Rainbow Theatre, I took the college camera, had an adventure where I thought, well, I'll take some pictures down the front. I can't, my balcony seat won't give me very good pictures. And then got this job. I mean, it wasn't a paid job. It was just access, really. By Monday, I had a job. <laughs> that is so brilliant. And we should say, I mean, this is, so this was a cinema at one point. I think it was like the biggest cinema in the UK or something, or maybe even Europe yes. at one point. Yes, I think um, so, yeah. And the, it was the, the Finsbury Park Astoria. I don't know if you, how early on in 72 it was, because some of the artists who's been playing, like Bowie, for instance, I, I was looking up like Ziggy Stardust, three mm. concerts there on that. There's this yeah. wonderful story around the December gig where he asked people to come into the gig to bring toys for, for local children for Christmas. Mm. <laughs> and then you've got Stevie Wonder, James Brown, Bob That's Marley. Like, yeah. Amazing artists. My yeah. God. Yeah, one after the other, really. Yeah. And were you going along to most of these most nights? Um, I went to as many as possible. In the case of Bowie, he's one of the few missing big stars in my archive because the night I went to Bowie with my little pass that said Access, all areas, Jill Fermanovsky, a bouncer jumped off the stage and said, you can't photograph this. And I said, I can. I'm the photographer. And he went, you're not David Bowie's photographer. And he, he ripped the film out of the back of my camera completely wow. freaked me out. And um, afterwards, I went backstage to complain to Bowie's manager. And he was like, oh, have this bottle of champagne, you know, like it was some joke or something. And years later, I didn't go back after that because it was pretty scary. And then years later, it was Mick Rock, who, you know, who photographed Queen. And he said to me, oh, well, I, I said to them, I should be uh, the only photographer, you know, you don't want anybody else. So I didn't ever photograph Bowie, although I saw him at the rainbow and I just wasn't able to photograph him and was freaked out. <laughs> but yes, every night there was 
amazing stuff. And we'll get on to the jam because that's where you know, your paths first cross with Mr. Weller is them playing the rainbow. I think it's a sound check at the rainbow. But let's, I'd love to find out more about some of these. So Bob Marley, for instance, I mean, they played, I think 77, they played four nights at the rainbow. Didn't you photograph Bob Marley in his hotel room? Mm, I did, yeah. Jumping forward, really, I suppose, um, the Whalers kind of became known to me around ni- 1975, 76 in the early days because one of the prog bands that were around before punk, uh, there was a couple of them really into the Whalers and so I'd heard about them. But yes, I photographed Bob Marley in 78. I didn't photograph him at the Rainbow, I don't think, actually. I photographed him in um, somewhere else, like um, in the north somewhere. I'm just trying to remember where it was because some of the films disappeared around that time. I've still got some live shots of Bob Marley wearing a, a whaler's knitted jersey that looked like his, his mum knitted for him or something. <laughs> and uh, and I did in 78 photograph him in a ho- hotel room. He was lovely. But I met Paul Weller. I met the jam. Oh, I met the jam. I saw Paul Weller was around the punk era. I mean, 77, he was, I think he was already around. And I think I had first photographed them at maybe at the Marquee, actually, or maybe even in some pub like the Hope and Anchor. And then also in 77, it would have been 77, 78, also in Tower Hamlets. And I don't know where that gig was, but they were wearing those suits. You know, those kind of, they were kind of had a reddish tinge to them. They looked like two-tone suits. So, yeah, so, you know, we knew who they were, but they weren't typically punk. They didn't style themselves as punk, but their music was punk. And was that music something that, I'm guessing would, you know, was something that you're into because it's, this is a huge exciting time for young people having their own music to a certain extent. And you photograph the Clash, the Pistols, bands like the Ramones and stuff as well. So you were really central to that world from a visual point of view. So, but was it your bag musically? I don't know if it was particularly. I just like the look and the energy of it. And, you know, I've always, I'm not actually, um, strangely enough, any kind of expert on music. I mean, my music is probably from the prog era. You know, I was a Pink Floyd photographer. I was in the camp that Johnny Rotten said, you know, we hate Pink Floyd. Um, (laughs) But um, so I wasn't in that camp, but I really loved the energy. And I was of the same age as, as the punks, you know, more or less, actually, maybe a year older than some or a year or two older than some. But I think Joe Strummer and I were the same age. And also that art school background, Joe Strummer had been there. Lena Lovich actually was another one in my college where music and art have a very strong connection in the UK. You know, John Lennon went to art school. Roxy Music went to art school. Joe Strummer went to art school. So you've got you've got these connections between art school and music. But I really like the energy of that punk music and got really involved in um, one of the first um, independent labels, Step Forward Records, with Mark Perry and Harry Malofsky, who started the fanzine Sniffing Glue. And they liked the jam. So that was good because if they hadn't, <laughs> they would tend to be down on bands that, that they, you know, you're either in or out. But I mean, I think they were they were accepting of the jam. Now, there's obviously that difference between capturing something live and that energy that you talk about of, of punk and any band, I suppose, that live experience versus studio work or Bob Marley in a hotel room, for instance. What is it that you're looking for when you're capturing, when you're front row like that and it's going off and it's, you know, 10 million miles an hour. I mean, I've got so many questions. How do you know what you're getting is any good? But what is it that you're trying to capture when you're looking down that lens? You just hope that it's going to be in focus and that you haven't fucked it up. (laughs) I mean, the point about that kind of era that is just that everybody was totally amateur. I mean, it wasn't. It was the era of if you can play three chords, you can form a band. So they were crap. 
I was a really crap photographer, as far as you really know from the point of view of I was untrained and inexperienced. Nobody really cared. I studied graphic design. I moved to graphic design in order to stay at art school because textile design said they weren't going to carry on uh, hosting me. Uh, graphics took me on. So I had to do a bit of typography and a bit of graphic design. So, you know, I was helping people also design record covers or, or pasting it together. But it was all done with cow gum and glue. And if you weren't sniffing it, you were using it to paste up your albums. <laughs> so it was very very amateur and suited me brilliantly. It's interesting on the podcast that people we talk to, like the promoters and the managers and the pluggers, like so many people just because this didn't exist before, you're just making it up as you go along, really. Yes, exactly. And, you know, the Sex Pistols, they were one outrage after the other, you know, and Malcolm McLaren was sort of holding the strings of the puppet, really. Um, and he was loving it. And he had an office, uh, Malcolm did, above the prog bands that I was working with, uh, Miles Copeland and his coterie of prog bands, and then the booking agents, John Sherry, used to book gigs. And then Sniffing Glue, they broke into an office, broke into an office there. It was like, a, you know, offices and corridors, put an electricity cable through Copeland's window into theirs, and they used to sleep there so that you could go to the 100 Club. I mean, it was just all... <laughs> Absolute chaos. <laughs> chaos and anarchy, anarchy in the UK. Yeah. For a little while. And, and remember, it only lasted about 18 months, the whole thing. Yes. And some of these gigs, I mean, I don't know how you were getting shots at all, being bashed, but the energy was one thing. But actually, some of these, it kind of tips over, really. There, there were fights and riots and all sorts of lots of these gigs, weren't there? Yes, yes. I mean, the, I remember the, the Clash playing the Rainbow. They broke up all the seats and things like that. So, yeah, that well, there was a scary at times. It was scary. Not so much scary at the smaller gigs because they only held about, I mean, they were packed, but there was only fit in about 100, 150. Maybe the 100 club was probably more. So that was a bit scarier still. The worst thing that could happen really was that you get beer or worse, gob all over you from oh. people. Um, spitting and throwing stuff, throwing liquids around. So I remember wearing a plastic raincoat at one, one or two gigs. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I can't. I don't understand the spitting thing. It's just the most bizarre thing. Neither did the American bands. They were horrified. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Now, let's talk about a couple of these shots. So, the jam famously letting fans into sound checks was a really big thing. And so, like kids who couldn't either afford to go to the gig or weren't allowed to go to the gig in the evening, often John Weller's letting them into the sound check. And there's a shot of um, this would have been what is it, 78 at the Rainbow? Um, mm. of a sound check. Can you remember that? Can you remember being let in as a photographer taking photos? And were there fans that were let in for that as well? I was allowed in anyway because I had that access to all areas pass, so sound checks were okay for me. But they were very laid back about it. And I just wandered over the stage and stuff like that. John Weller's really important figure in the jam's history, obviously. You know, he was... He was a father figure. He was literally the father figure, obviously, for Paul, but he was a kind of father figure generally. I mean, he really got it. And I think the whole family were involved, his mum as well, and his sister, of course, later on, but she must have been very young then. And so it was a family affair. So there were some people hanging about at the soundcheck. I wouldn't have known who they were, whether he let them in or not. I don't know. You did have this feeling that the jam organisation, which was around that Weller family, were a sort of in their own bubble within the punk they have the energy of punk, but you know it's it's a different sound, isn't it? Yeah, different sound, different, and certainly different packaging. Yeah, and different. Yeah, totally. They were different. more mod packaging, weren't they? Really. Around that time, obviously, the Jam are then kind of getting big as well. They're starting to have number one singles. Yeah, they're touring the world, Japan, the States, and that kind of thing. But they're you know they're having big singles, big albums. The fan base is huge. Did your access change to the bands at that point? Did you, or was it still kind of quite easy to kind of get 
get shots of the band? They were on my on my radar, but I was working for the music press at that time. I was doing lots and lots of different jobs, so I wouldn't have been trying to get in unless somebody asked me to do something. And so I didn't really document the jam um, as such, unlike, say, the police, for example, where in the case of police, I, you know, I was on the road with them and um, was doing shoots with them and that sort of thing. That wasn't the case of the jam. They were just in the vicinity of what I was doing. And I had intermittent contact with them. And you'd bump into Paul from time to time and, you know, see him somewhere and say hello to him and that sort of thing. You mentioned the magazines and, and being part of that world. There's a lovely piece, 1983, The Face magazine, which was another Weller connection. So at this point, the jam was split. We're into, I don't even know if we were straight into the Style Council at that point. I think when you, maybe when you first took the shots it hadn't been quite revealed but certainly when it was then published in face magazine they talked about the style council being just paul and mick and they were looking for a female singer at that point so this is another a different side of paul weller he's out of the jam punk's long Mm. gone and we're into a period of new romantics and the style council being a very jazz kind of sound and stuff so this is a different paul weller entirely yes yes i mean in my documentary i've said you know paul weller paul smith and the face that's like a three-way marriage in heaven you know they they were made for each other um and who would have thought i guess it wasn't really a surprise and also remember that nick logan who started the face he was a great revolutionary and was in was the editor of the nme before that he's one of the most uncelebrated least celebrated but most should be celebrated editors ever in in um in the the press he was like he, he could have been paul weller himself he wore the paul smith suits he had the same haircut. He was a mod, really, and he was obviously older than Paul. They were mirrors of each other, and he commissioned me to do Paul for the face. That was really the first time I got to really chat to Paul, you know, work with him and so on. I wish I'd been a better photographer then. I must admit that I was winging it when I started in the studio as well. I hadn't been trained, so I had my own studio at that point, but I was still pretty green. It wasn't like he came, like some of them did later, with an entourage of hair, makeup and, you know, stylists. I mean, he was just wearing his normal clothes, <laughs> but they were all immaculate. I don't know who was ironing his shirts and everything was on a hanger nicely. I mean, you've probably seen the shot of him from behind. Have you that one? Yeah, yeah I've got it here. Shoes and, yeah. you know, he was so neat and tidy and, and he, has a, he had a beautiful physique as well. I mean, he took his shirt off at one point. He had beautiful, beautiful chest. I mean, I mean he was just a lovely looking guy. And also um, one thing about him, that was there from the very start, actually, which I haven't mentioned, but was really there written across his head from the first moment I met him as a punk was that he was serious. It, he wasn't mucking about. He was doing it and he was doing it. I mean, he was, he was a man absolutely driven. And I think it's the same to this day. It's like he was born to do it. And that is quite rare in my experience. He was a serious guy. And, you know, when he came to, I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't funny or amusing or all the rest, but he, Something must have driven that kid. And by the time he came to my studio, and he was in his mid-twenties, I guess, then he he was on his way to fuck knows where, but he was going. He was there. And, you know, so he had his suits and his clothes and he knew what he was doing. And his relationship with Mick, who I think came to that shoot as well, or it might have been a separate shoot I did with them, was also quite funny. It was like almost Mick was Mr. Ordinary in a strange kind of way. (laughs) He didn't look like a rock person. And so they were a funny, a funny couple, those two, you know, obviously great mates. And then there was a girl called Tracy, was it, that also did singing for them? I think I photographed her as well. And uh, for Paul, we we used, um, what you call it, one of those... mirrors with curves in it and stuff that makes everything go bendy he was up for that as well you know i mean he was he was up for it 
but he was serious. And he's somebody that's always, from talking to people on this podcast, he's always had a very visual side to his music in the sense that every album that's released is packaged beautifully with yes. great imagery. The, you know, the visuals that, you know, accompany all of him with magazines and newspaper and stuff are always immaculate and perfect. So did he come to that session with an idea of what he wanted to get out of it? Was it collaboration? Was it out, or the, like the bendy mirror? Was that coming from you going, here's what I want? And then him kind of working with you? Um, well, he knew he was doing a shoot for the cover of the face and it's enormously prestigious, even for somebody who was already very successful. So he made an effort, you know, he came with his clothes. I think the mirror thing was my idea. We did some with it and some without and so on. I have to go and have another look at that shoot to let you know better. Yeah. The funny thing is, I think he'd still fit into that suit. <laughs> He would exactly isn't that doesn't that say a lot yeah and the all was cigarettes even you know all, all everything was so stylish yeah yeah it's a beautiful jacket isn't it with the checked jacket and the red in, in red lining yeah, yeah stunning absolutely stunning you presumably the interview with paul that became part of that article came separate you weren't involved in that you were kind of providing the shots but sometimes i guess the shots become part of the article like you're trying to tell a story through the photos as well would that be the case yeah i suppose so you see the face gave prestige to photographers that we hadn't had before so what happened was you got your own shoot with the artist prior to the face this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's literally, you go with the journalists, they were the kings, they did their interview, you shot them being interviewed in the same room, which was quite nice. And if you were lucky, if the PR didn't chuck you out immediately for the next lot, you got five minutes to do portrait. And that's how it was. This was now the opposite. The journalist got five minutes for an interview and you got an hour to take pictures. And not quite, but, you know, the whole thing twisted on its head because of the face, really. And that became more important to get a cover and a big spread in pictures. So I don't know about, you know, there were picture stories in the face, but, you know, it was more like Vogue, really. Change of clothes, another picture, you know, hair a bit different or change of lighting a bit. The twist on that at that point then becomes that you're getting credited as well, which didn't always happen. So suddenly now, and I think this is probably still true to this day, a lot of the time in these magazines, like the photographer is credited with the shots in the in the article too, which prior to that, I don't think really happened, did it? That's right. It certainly didn't happen in my very earliest days. And I, when I asked for a credit, I remember Ray Coleman of Melody Maker saying, you'll get one when you deserve one. Like, you know, it was like, <laughs> I've had a cover or two by then as well. <laughs> I thought, well, when will I deserve a credit? Or they would credit their own house photographers, but not the freelancers. So the face was the opposite. They couldn't pay, you see. They didn't have any money. So the one thing they could offer was a byline, a really good one. So, yeah. And also Nick Logan was the first to credit photographers properly in NME before that and smash smash hits after that. We all got credited by Nick Logan. So we all worshipped him, really. I mean, because he he understood the value of 
visuals more mm. than anybody. That's really nice because it's also something I've noticed about doing this podcast is like actually Paul Weller as a subject is quite easy to research because he always has always credited everybody on everything. From the very first Jam album, he'll call out every producer, engineer, every artist, every photographer from day one. And I don't know where that comes from, but that's a lovely thing to have done throughout his entire career. Yes, yeah. it is. It's generous, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, the other photo I could find in your archive, which is huge and immense, and obviously this is the stuff that's out there in the world, not your personal one at home there uh, on the hard drive, was 2015. So Paul Weller solo at Glastonbury. But I'm guessing there would have been shots between that face shoot and that 2015 time, would there, with Paul? Yes. I don't know if I did shoots with him, actually, but as I said, he was around. And of course, he became a very good friend with Oasis. And so I'd see him come to gigs and things like that, just say hello. And um, I didn't really follow his career, you see. I mean, also, he had very, very good photographers like Lawrence Watson and people around him who, you know, in that era of rock, you tended to have your bands that you, you know, you guarded a little bit with like, that's one of my groups and so on. Not not really, but, you know, yeah. not like Mick Rock. <laughs> yeah. So Paul was, and, and Penny Smith, who, who, who I think did some of the most brilliant pictures of her. And, and Virginia Turbot did some great shots of Paul in that era. Um, in Rock Archive, we, you know, we try to bridge all these things together. You know, I mean, if I didn't photograph that era, somebody else did. And we try and we've always tried to sort of find who did the great pictures in the time. But for myself, he was just a person to say hello to. And he came in the studio, still does. I saw him not that long ago coming in with Noel. You know, I know they're huge mates. And Noel actually recorded in his studio. Oh, well, I was going to ask you about Rock Archive, because this is, I mean, a huge online collection of your photography, but also of others as well. And I was wondering, I mean, in the photographic world, are you, do you see each other as, as competitors or are you, you know, colleagues? And yeah, how is it? So there's people like, from a Weller point of view, you mentioned some of them, but Martin Goddard, mm. Steve Rapport, who's been on the podcast, um, Garrett Mankovich, mm. Virginia Turbot, who's coming on the podcast. You, I'd have thought you'd be all like, you know, I want to get that shot or whatever, but it seems like you're all mates and friendly then if you're because it's your it's your way you own the rock archive and you've let them in so i only started rock archive because i could i, I after my oasis exhibition in the 90s i had all this equipment and also we'd had a website which was very rare in 1997 there wasn't that many websites around so i thought this should really be a more general thing than just oasis so when i started rock archive as a, as a url i thought that's a good one and what can i put in it so then i spoke to various friends of mine who were photographers and um, i said why don't you each put in like five people pictures you don't need to put in your best one just give us five that we can make prints from and start it off and really the reason behind it was to I thought we should have there'll be a rock and roll museum at some point in the country or we should have one it's mad that there is, it's mad that there isn't isn't it well, this, yeah. this has been my bugbear for years mad. and um, my latest uh, my last one was trying to get Hampstead police station as the jailhouse rock museum which would have been brilliant but it's been sold for property development uh, and so on and so i didn't think for a minute that rock archive is which is celebrating its 25th anniversary next year i didn't think for a moment it would be necessary to have that for so long i thought there'd be a museum and then we can ha sort of hand hand it over there hasn't been i'm fascinated by photographers fascinated i always have been and very grateful to the ones that helped me when I was starting out because I was so amateur, you know, in a drum solo. How do you process your film? I might put them and go, nine and a half minutes, microphone, 68 degrees. See, I still remember that. That's <laughs> <And, laughs> <burn> in. <laughs> yeah. And then, but others might elbow you out the way, especially young girl, you know, sort of like, get out my way. You know, I'm working for the Daily Mail or something, you know, that sort of thing. So you'd get that sort of thing. And then, as I say, we're, we were a bit territorial about our bands as well. But 
I've always, you know, with the waist, I always said, no, work with everybody. You know, I'm, I can't shoot everything anywhere. And some people will be better at some things than others. And, and Mick Rock, I mean, um, he stopped me photographing Bowie. You know, I thought, well, that was appalling when I finally found out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah absolutely. I think we mentioned I'm really that. Pissed off that. I'm still pissed off now, Mick. Um, but, um, no, I love the photographers and I've interviewed a lot of them for, for Rock Archive just, bec- and then they, you know, luckily I did because they've died. Elvis's photographer, um, um, Don Hunstein, who photographed Dylan a lot. I felt a kind of love for them, really. Hope that we could also help. I mean, you know, if they write doesn't go, I, I don't want to do with the copyright issue or, you know, that sort of thing. So I thought what it is or the idea of it was that it would be an archive of archives. And all these portfolios in within for each of these different photographers. Another way it's like you can look by a photographer, but you can also look by artists. So if you're passionate okay. about, you mentioned Oasis, and we'll talk about that in a second as well, but you can, you're suddenly in this Oasis archive, but there's not just your photos, there's lots of others from other mm. photographers as well, which is lovely. Well, that's what it should be. I mean, that this is as close as we can get to some sort of a visual museum online, and I only wish that um, somebody would actually make it a reality. Well, there you go. That's the, that's the next project. Let's talk Oasis, because you worked so much with them and documenting their career right from the early days, 1994 to 2009. Would that be right? Yes. I mean, I still work with Noel now, but yes, absolutely. To, um, 1994 to 2009, yeah. Yeah. And lots of well, the connections with that band, like you mentioned, you know, mm. mates and, and all that, and him turning up and playing with them at times and things like that. But how did you first get introduced to Oasis? What was the first shoot? What was the first connection? How did you get that gig? I had been trying to publish a book of my work, which would take, I'd had so many rejection letters from publishers, and the book finally got a publisher. And it was called The Moment and it came out in 1995, but I'd been working on it for years. And when the publishers gave me the go ahead around 1994, beginning of 94, and it was a sort of a diary from being a Beatles fan to, and I thought, well, I don't want the book to date too much. So it'd be good if it had an up and coming band. And Daniela Suave, who I worked with a great deal on Record Mirror, and also I'd seen a bit on MTV by that time. Um, she told me about Oasis. And I'd already, as I say, seen them and thought they were really great. I thought, brilliant. They're, they're a bit Beatly. And it's from the Beatles to Oasis, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Mm, yeah. Band up and coming. So I contacted their PR company and went to the Cambridge Corn Exchange in December 1994 and sent them the pictures. And they absolutely loved them. And also, I didn't know this, but they were looking for a photographer at the time. And Johnny Hopkins, who was their PR, very clever guy, he thought, best to get a woman in because as Noel says in my documentary, the management did get that right. They used to, they had a female tour manager. He said, if you put blokes working with us lot would have been a disaster. <laughs> but they had respect. <laughs> they had respect for women through their mother, Peggy, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of women around them. Yeah. I kind of got the gig by default, really. I was, I was ending my book and thought, well, that's it. I probably won't do that much rock anymore. And on the contrary, well, swept, <laughs> off in the, swept off in the comet and then just thought, got to really run with this one because I didn't do the Beatles. Um, I was too young to do that, but I can do this great, great band here. And also they were as um, a bit like Elvis and the Elvis photographer, Alfred Wertheimer said, they allowed closeness, they allowed intimacy, they allowed it. There's some moments that, I mean, you're traveling the world with the band. They've just become the biggest band in Britain. And it feels like almost overnight. It's such a quick thing from, and I know Noel talks about this in, the, in one of the Oasis documentaries, might be the Nebworth one, where they're on the doll and then 18 months later, they're, they're selling out, you know, they're, they're doing these two nights at Nebworth. Yeah. It's such an amazingly quick journey that they get to the top, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's, well, that's why I call it a comet. You just think you can't get any bigger and it got bigger. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> hang on to the, you know, you're just hanging on there, sort of swinging off the 
the back of it and thinking, oh my God. So last year, there was this lovely moment where between the lockdowns, the launch of the book with Daniel Rachel, which would have been the 25th anniversary of those two nights at Nebworth, 25 years on, there was this wonderful moment where the book launch, you and Daniel Rachel launched this beautiful coffee table book, which we'll talk about in a sec of of this anniversary. And it was the first time out of lockdown where I'd been to like a little gig because there was Simon Fowler and Oscar from Ocean Colour Scene, did a little set because they were part of the support acts at Nebworth, along with pretty much everybody else from the Britpot time, apart from Weller, I think. Everybody was there. The Manics and Prodigy and um, Chemical Brothers. There's this lovely moment where they they did a few songs acoustically and I got a little tear in my eye. It was like live music again. I don't know what it was or I'm getting old and it, it felt like that much time had passed or something. I'm not sure, but it was a really emotional evening. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? And then we just heard that Charlie Watts had died just before we started it and it was like, oh, one of the Rolling Stones is gone and my, one of the great, greatest drummers on earth, you know, and one of the great, and I was, you know, what an evening that was. It was, you know, you, we were so deprived of anything live around that period of time. I also went to Glastonbury because for my documentary around that time to do some filming and it had been cancelled. It was a second cancellation and the pyramid was there, a skeleton of this pyramid. And walking through that field, I was thinking, you know, I was talking to the camera and saying, you know, God, you know, all the millions of people who've been here, it means so much to them. And, you know, there were some tears there as well. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, It's so important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Now, let me take you back to Nebworth because I mean, it didn't get much bigger than that. Was it two nights, 125,000? people each night. I mean, the stories of the amount of celebrities flying back and forth in helicopter <laughs> to go and get wellies and all kinds of stuff was, I mean, it's just massive. These city, this almost like this city that they built um, for these these gigs. That it's not like Nebworth was a regular music venue, but I guess from your point of view, it's a bit different. And I remember reading in the book about how you're kind of, you're staring down a lens at it and you're so in the moment that maybe you're not so aware of the kind of surroundings and the, the hugeness of it because you're, you're there to do a job and you've got to capture the band, right? That's true. And also I was doing child Care. <laughs> I had my eight-year-old daughter with me for, I think it was the first night, or perhaps it was the second. I can't remember which night it was. And I had to park her on the stage while <laughs> I did the job. We can't just leave an eight-year-old, can you? I mean, I said, stay there and don't. And she said, well, can I have one of those balls? You know, those huge Adidas <laughs> balls. I said, well, you could get one of those if you stay right here. But I mean, I was wandering around shooting, but I also had, I was also doing that. So I, I, I'm the wrong person to ask anything about Nebworth because I was busy shooting or, or doing childcare. <laughs> my car broke down afterwards. So I had to get the AA in that. So, I mean, I, you know, when you say to Noel Gallagher, the first time anyway, I asked him, what do you remember when you look at this picture of main road with your arms outstretched? And he went, I just thought, don't trip over those wires. Don't fuck it up. That's what his memory was. You know, you don't want to fall flat on your face when there's a crowd out there, do you? You don't want to ruin the pictures if you've been given the access and you've forgot to put the film in the camera or, you know, made some mistakes. So you tend to not really be terribly aware of, of anything other than what you have to do. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you go to gigs these days and so many people are filming the gig, taking photos of the gig on their mobile phone. But this was pre that really, wasn't it? This wasn't a thing. The shots that you've got are really the shots that people maybe have captured in their memory, but actually they didn't really exist anywhere else. Yeah, well, that's what Noel says. You know, the last big gathering before everybody went digital, really. Yeah. That was the cusp of the digital revolution and I had a very big groundbreaking exhibition that went along with a year later I think it was yeah my exhibition was there then at the roundhouse and that's when everything changed and it's funny isn't it because it's like 
I don't, I don't mind the pit. I'm happy with that. But if I, if I go to a gig now and all I see is just a sea of phones and you end up just watching the gig through everybody else's mobile phones. Yeah. You're in the moment. We're here. It's like, you're, you're probably never going to watch back that crappy video on your mobile phone. It's like, you know, experience that. And I think that's, that was a wonderful thing at those times, wasn't it? You know, it is. Although, of course, I've been looking at it through a lens long before that. And, and so actually it's, you, it's a kind of an absence. You're not really there i mean that's what i'm saying maybe actually it's more like if you're in the band and you're playing something you're not actually there either you mean you're just thinking i better not screw that up is my amp working all right why hasn't the roadie tuned the guitar properly or why is that person staring at me strangely in the audience (laughs) you might be be in some other zone you're not actually there either (laughs) yes Um, so people everybody's doing their job the road crew wouldn't know how the gig went unless there was some fuck up at their end so only the audience can really and then now they're watching it as you say they're busy recording it i understand the urge to want to record stuff but it's actually you can't that is the great irony of it all. Even at our end, at the professional end, you cannot. That's why you have to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking of Oasis, there's one other shot that I wanted to ask you about, which was Heaton Park. Mm. So this would have been towards the end, right? I'm guessing this is where the, so the generator packs up once and then a mm. second time, right? And these are, I mean, this is packed, tens of thousands of people. I mean, that must have been terrifying thinking that's about to kick off. Yeah, that was scary too. Yeah, it was really scary. I mean, they did really well actually to deal with it. I mean, Noel just sat on an amp at one point, just <laughs> like that. But I mean, he didn't go away. They only went away when they had a sign that said, look, we're trying to fix a generator. But, you know, that crowd would have been there since uh, the afternoon and they were they were drunk pretty much and they were they wanted their gig. So yeah, that was very scary. Yeah, it was. And I guess it's still as a photographer, it's like actually your job is still to capture those moments, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was a bit nervous about being out there though, in case, you know, because I have been in a situation where the crowd pushes the barrier and you trapped a bit, you know, I was figuring where I would escape to. So that happened. When we talk about the photography, what is it that keeps that spark? I mean, Paul, a music career now of if you you know if you think about the start of the jam when he we kind of formed it as a kid with um, Steve Brooks it's um 50 years ago the jam right 1972 so a same timeline really for you yes. entering the world of photography and yes. Paul's still at it you know you're still passionate about it and you know and doing it what is it that keeps you going what keeps that kind of spark alive in this well Chrissy Hines said it best again in my documentary thing I'm giving you little clues as to that but she said I'm doing my hobby she said if you make money out of it, great. If it is your hobby, which is your love, isn't it? It's what you do in your spare yeah. time, isn't it? isn't it? Then why would you want to give that up? You just keep doing it until you fall over, really, I think. I know there are people who do move on and do other things and they're very fulfilled by doing it. But I've got bored with the whole copyright issues, um, restrictions. I'm so sick of not getting a pass for things like, last, you know, the access. It just pisses me off now and i think by now i should have an access all areas worldwide for, everything. Yeah, for anything and, and everything show up and they go yes you can come in do what you want to do so i'm really pissed off about that and i from that point of view i sometimes feel like i'm not doing it anymore but not from the point of view of not being excited by a new talent when i was at glassbury this year i went to photograph chris difford an old client of mine um squeeze and young blood was there he was a big fan of squeeze and he was delightfully posed for my camera you know i think the session i did i did a little shoot with him it lasted about 35 seconds and it really made my day (laughs) that's what i want i want to be able to go to billy eilish and go look just sit over there by the mirror okay cool click click finish billy eilish not you can't come in anywhere near billy eilish because 
you know, not um, Hendrik Lamar is not a very, you know, screw all that. (laughs) Paul Weller said to the fans, you can come in. He said to me, you can go on the stage. It was okay. And we were still one generation on from Barry Wenzel's generation, where Jimi Hendrix said, let's, you know, come and hang out for a week or something like that. So, or the Beatles, you know, where they published in the Beatle Monthly and said, Paul's got a new house. Here's the address to pop in. Not quite, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the access has gone. We can't go back. And it's quite right that we shouldn't go back, really. We should always go forward. But the enthusiasm and the talent doesn't go away. It keeps renewing itself. Love it. Oh, I love it. Tell me about this documentary then. So when are we going to get to see it? Where, what stage are we at right now? Well, there's a whole chunk of it now. And um, <laughs> I'm just um, working with the director on polishing it. And we're going to have to get music rights. I think we need a bit of money actually to finish it because we did it for a shoestring. Maybe somebody like Simon Helfon will come and help us with it. Actually, you probably know Simon Helfon, do, do you? I've read his book recently. I've read his book recently yeah yeah that's great that supersonic one yeah we'll see I, i'll let you know <laughs> okay yeah you too because i yeah that would be that's a, that's a really exciting project that sounds great hey look i love talking with you jill i have two final questions for you before you head off um they're the same questions that all our guests get so you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or solo what would you pick oh gosh you've put me on the spot there there's one in my head but i i may have to come back to you on that one <laughs> you can sing it <laughs> no no i cannot sing it <laughs> I think Wildwood, actually. Ah. I think, actually, because it reminded me a bit of like Led Zeppelin when they, Led Zeppelin used to start some of their most beautiful songs acoustically and then it would go into some. Those are so touching, those pieces of music. So yeah, that was that was so unexpected from somebody who came out of punk. And then final question. So um, you mentioned about kind of passion points and or hobbies rather that you get paid for. I used to be a radio presenter. That was my big very, life dream. Very, very professional, I must say. I'm <laughs> amazed you're not on Radio 1 or some other... Oh, bless you. So, so, um, thing. You're very uh, good. Well, I, d- I did send them my demo, but you know. Um, and that was my job for ages and ages. And I kind of did fall out of love with it and went and did something else instead. But 10 years ago, I gave up that radio a dream if you like but i had one big regret my big regret was that i never got to interview paul weller so i've created a podcast to make this happen <laughs> probably have you asked him <laughs> have you thought of asking him well this is a really long <laughs> this is a really long question <laughs> like it's now over 100 120 odd episodes now to get to the answer paul will you do an interview but we're, we're having a lovely journey on the way but if it happens and i get to chat to paul at the end of this podcast series what do you think i should ask him what would you like to know anything <laughs> just say why <laughs> <laughs> that could mean so many things <laughs> exactly <laughs> like why bother why, why are you still doing it why, why, did, why, why did you get started and then Just... that's it you only need one question and the rest of the interview will answer it for you <laughs> that is amazing Joe, it's been lovely lovely to see you and thank you so much and thank you so much for the images and the ph- photography and everything because you've captured so much for so many music fans it's fabulous oh i'm pleased thank you very much Well, there you go. My thanks once again to another fabulous guest on the podcast, Jill Fermanovsky. What a legend. And if you want to find out more, do check out my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Just head to the show notes for this podcast to find photos, links, and details of everything that we talked about. I've even put up some scans of that copy of Face magazine that we talked about, courtesy of the mighty Neil Sheesby. Yes, Brother Shees from Stone Foundation. Thanks for sharing that, sir. Whilst you're there, I'd encourage you to visit rockarchive.com, that incredible site that we talked about. 
You'll also find on my page 10% off, yes, a discount code if you want to buy a print between now and January the 7th and a competition to win a very special print of Mr. Weller by Jill on my website as well. Find all the details, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do leave a review. Yes, five stars will be lovely on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Spread the word on social media as well. Let all your Weller-loving, the Jam-loving, the Star Council-loving, heck, any music-loving fan would love this podcast, right? Let them know about it. Share the news, the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. And if you fancy buying a virtual coffee, you can do that in my store as well. Doing exactly that in the past week or so, Colin and Jennifer Marsh say loving the podcast, learning so much about the inner workings of the Weller world is a treat. Keep up the good work, Dan. Keep the faith. Well, thank you to you both. Hi to Grant. Cheers for your virtual coffee as well. Hi, Ian Trainor. Hello, sir. Vince Bicarino says, keep up the good work, Dan. Thanks for your generosity, sir. Hi to Sean Wilson says, hi, Dan. Massive thanks to you and what you have achieved so far and also for passing on my questions. Much appreciated, my friend. Take care, Dan. Sean. Well, cheers, Sean. Hi to Alex McLaughlin. Says, Merry Christmas, mate. Put this towards a bottle of wine for you and your good lady and a couple of selection boxes for the kids. Enjoy your holiday. It's well earned. All the best, Alex. Hey, Alex, thank you so much once again for your support. It's really appreciated. Hi to Terry Stewart, who bought me a coffee. Here's a nice one. Rob Pollard says, As of the 3rd of December, 2022, I have just celebrated my 45th year of being a jam star council and Paul Weller solo fan. Keep the podcast going, Dan. It makes Tuesdays worth it. And finally, thanks to Gary Tomkin who says fantastic stuff looking forward to the book you're making me feel guilty now gary i really should pull my finger out and get on with it shouldn't i hey thanks for listening cheers for your virtual coffee too cheers to all of you in 2022 for supporting the podcast whether you've been listening whether you came to one of our live events you bought merchandise a virtual coffee or you've just spread the word it's all greatly appreciated and who knows 2023 it's got to be the one right you know where i am at weller fan pod on twitter or instagram and facebook Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can get in touch via the website as well, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in 2023. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.